Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, this week's guest is Todd Pipes, who was the lead singer of Deep Blue Something. Surely you remember Deep Blue Something. They hit number five in 1995 with this track right here, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Now some people love this song, some people not so much. It's interesting, just a couple of weeks ago, I heard a commentator on Fresh Air talking about how she had posted on Facebook or something that this was the worst song of all time and realized afterwards that she was friends with Todd or connected to Todd in some way so he would have seen it. Anyway, my feeling has always been, this was a decent song, but it's one of those hits that is not indicative of what the rest of the album sounds like. To me, Deep Blue Something is, yeah, there's that jangle pop angle, but there's actually a little more cure, a little more kind of almost gothic pop, if that is such a thing in the rest of the album, which you wouldn't know unless you heard it. It's a great album. I thought it would be really interesting to get to know Todd and find out who he is and what he's like and how he feels about his career. He's actually a highly literate, intelligent guy. It's interesting to find out too that he basically left music mostly on his own terms. So often we talk to people on this show where they were the victims of politics and that sort of forced them out or you know interest dwindled or whatever that was not really the case in todd's life he kind of did it on his own terms i think you're really gonna like him i was highly impressed with him he's a very nice guy i really love talking to him he called me from his home in dallas i usually kick off these interviews with kind of uh you know a story or an anecdote of how i discovered the band or something relating to the band. And I remember you guys from the beginning. I was just the right age. I would have been, you know, in college and college in the 90s. There was so much, that was a really kind of a, music mattered a lot right then. You know what I mean? Oh, man, yeah. Especially in the mid-90s. So I've loved home for 20 years now. And, but I got to know, what in the world is a Gammer Gurton needle? Gamma Gurton's Needle, because you have to remember when the band formed, 
the other guys they were undergrads. I was in graduate school. Okay. You know, studying English and I'm having to take some courses that I I really enjoy and other ones that I don't particularly. And this was sort of you know pre Shakespearean English mm-hmm. drama. Okay, I was taking this class mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the professor. I actually eventually dropped the class because it was just I just could not get into it. I I found right. other things I could take. So, but uh-huh. the professor had this one thing and he was talking about the the first regular quote unquote regular English comedy which you know at the time anything was that everyone didn't die was a comedy. Okay. Okay, uh-huh. it was called Gammer Girton's Needle. And the gist of the whole thing essentially was looking for you know grandmother Girton's needle huh. in a haystack kind of thing. Except it wasn't oh. in a haystack. Like the the needle would kind of pass from character to character like one it was in the seat of one guy's trousers, you know, kind of stuck. Oh. And so they're looking for you know, it was kind of, you know, old English, so it's uh-huh. uh, Gammer Girton's needle. Okay. And for whatever reason, you know, cuz we had that that instrumental song, uh-huh. I just liked the way that that sounded. Uh-huh. Gammer Girton's needle. It just sounds ominous even though it's right, actually right, kind it of comedic. Um, you know, and on the set list, it's only just ever. It just has always said needle, uh-huh. you know, because it's the beginning of the show. Always has sure. been, always will okay. be. But yeah, that's where that comes from. I've always been confused, and I, I absolutely love that song. And and I'm going to say something about it that I hope makes sense to you. I assume because you're in music, you must love music as much yes. or more than I do. You know how there are songs that sound like how you imagine the inside of you sounds like it's yeah. what the, it's the soundtrack of kind of your soul or your yeah. brain and your soul and your emotions all mixed together whatever's going on inside of you if it made music the music my insights would make would sound like gammer Gurdon's needle i don't know if that makes any sense to you i hope it that does. it does because that is absolutely high praise uh, well i man that's excellent yeah um, it's, it's one, just one thing sound band... that like pierces me well, there's something. The thing that I I like the best about us as a band are our instrument, instrumentals, and we yeah. do actually do a lot of them. Our sets have long introductions to various things. Really, and that goes back to because we're all Rush fans. Okay. And you know, and you know, Rush and the you know, The Cure uh-huh. has a lot of kind of sure. instrumental stuff. Yeah. And Depeche Mode too. When you really think yes. about kind of their their 12 inch mixes of everything, Definitely. and we had all yep. of those. So. When we get together and jam, that's what we do. And and really? these long epic soundscapes, and we just man, we can stand there and just do it for hours and hours and hours, great. and everybody loves it. So that song yeah. came from one rehearsal, and I said, "Hey, here's a chord progression. You know, let's do this for a bit." And then we kind of did that. I said, "Okay, now." And then we went to this other chord progression, and then we just went over it and over it, and we were like, "Yes, that we're gonna. This is gonna be how we start shows yeah. because, nice. and the reason we did it to begin with, you didn't get sound show. like we played all the time. Like when I was in graduate really? school, we were playing 250 shows a year. I mean, we were mental. Wow. I mean, the guys would fly back. We'd go and play a show in Lubbock, and the guys really? would get on a plane <laughs> and fly back to take an exam. And uh-huh. meet us in Lawrence, Kansas. Great. Like we oh, did that all great. the time. So we're playing all these clubs, and you don't get sound checks. So we would play an instrumental song as the first song, where everyone kind of comes in mm-hmm. individually, 
Mm-hmm. And by the end of the song, you've Perfect got a sound check. And yeah. the crowd doesn't know any different. And we yeah. do it at festivals. And so that's that's why we had that on there, and that's why oh, we still great. do it. But, yeah, the instrumental thing. I, and, and I would love to do a record of just our long instrumental songs. That would be really interesting. I've never been able to see you guys live. I'm imagining that Gamma Gurtons would have come from that kind of jamming, really yes. emotive, like let's let's dig in deep and find something that hits hard. And yes. then you'd be able to sort of replicate that at the beginning of every show. And having never seen you live, you're saying that, that would be the perfect introduction, I think, to you guys. Yeah, it, it, and it definitely sets the mood. Because, you yeah. know, lots of people are there because they've heard Brexit Tiffany's. Sure. And they think, you know, and I'm completely That's down what they're getting with people. Into. You know, it's going to be a jangly, you know, yep. collegiate pop band, and that's totally right. cool. But let's sort of set the tone just mm-hmm. slightly differently, and everything mm-hmm. else will make a little more sense. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting that you say that because to me, and I don't know how you'll feel about this, it sounds like maybe you kind of get it. Breakfast at Tiffany's to me is almost more of the outlier on that album. There's, yeah, it, there's of more of it that sounds in keeping with Gamma Gurton, like Red Light.
I true. love that song, and I'm super happy that they still pretty much always play it. But that's yeah. not who they are. No, not anymore. You know, no, that, that kind of thing. The jangly thing for us came from being fans of bands like the House Martins. Oh, good one. You know, nice. you know what I mean? Yes. Fast, jangly, up tempo. It sounds like they're happy, but yes. their words don't sound super happy. <laughs> you know, yes. you know what I mean? It's like you're really into the yes. words. Like I don't think these guys are really that happy at all. Oh you my know? gosh! But, that's, but it's so but that's, peppy, right? Yeah, super peppy, sort wow. of heavyish lyrics. Yeah. You know, so that that was our jangly influence, and that's yeah, the, and that and a lot of influence from Love and Rockets. You know, really? There's a there's a ton of acoustic guitar. Even going back to Bauhaus, sure. Daniel Ash plays twelve string acoustic a lot, and so yeah, there is kind of a no new tale to tell sort of vibe. I am. I would you, never have thought that if you hadn't said that. Yeah, those were the songs that we were learning when Toby and wow. I changed from being a strictly electronic band, because that's what we were before this. Oh, got tired of lugging all that crap around everywhere. Like, well, we got to learn to play on guitars. I think we can cover this. This is three chords. Yeah. <laughs> those are the songs we yes. learned. That makes sense. And, you know, I absolutely love the EP that you guys put out last year. Oh, uh, thanks. Locust yeah, we House, were... right? Yeah, and tough, because yeah. that one to me sounds like it's focused on these influences that you and I are talking about now, mm -hmm. which are yeah. kind of, it's kind of my wheelhouse. Sounds like it might sort of be for you too. That yeah. sort of '80s alternative, somewhat maybe a little darker, very epic yeah. in scope. You know, mm -hmm. that's the music that like really hits the furthest home to me, and that's the music of yours that I like so much. And so this this EP is perfect. All five of those songs nail it to my ears, you know? Was that sort yeah. of conscious? Did you sort of like, let's just go directly to what we think we're good at? What was the thinking there? That, that was the really strange thing because when we first started talking, I, I had just finished a solo record, my, my second mm -hmm. one, and one of Toby had just finished one of his side projects, and so we were talking technical, you know, mastering and bit rates and all that stuff that we always talk mm -hmm. about. And he had said, you know, do you have any stuff that would be more Deep Blue something related? I think we should do something just for fun, you know, mm -hmm. record a song or two. And so that started the conversation. And so and that's when I said, hey, there's a couple of songs that you and Kirk wrote that we never recorded. Like this one song mm -hmm. called No Worries, which was mm -hmm. the whole – that started this whole thing going. And we never mm -hmm. found the song. But <laughs> – we went back and we wanted to record that one song. And from mm -hmm. that, that's what got everybody on the phone. And really? we couldn't remember how to play No Worries, which drove us mm. crazy. And so we're no, still to bad. this day, we're looking, we played that song so many times. Someone somewhere has a live copy of that <laughs> song, but we Great. can't remember the whole thing. But War Song was written okay. back then with Toby and Kurt. They wrote that song. nice it is. Now I know before I go Born in the dirt, burning in the snow Send me out, send us out You will never feel warm in your home No, not anymore And I'm sitting at this empty table Wishing you were here with me Wishing you would write
poses a question for me, which is, how, like I was mentioning earlier, how does Todd Pipes pay his bills? Have you made a living in the music industry for the last 25 years, basically nonstop? Or when the band goes away, do you transition to other things? And when I say other things, I'm not talking about producing or like owning a label. Those are still in the music industry to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't know if that. I hope that's not too personal of a question. But where do where do you go? What do you? How have you been maintaining a career all these all these years? Well, yeah, that was the thing. Toby and I started our studio, which uh-huh. basically was, you know, my wife finally venturing upstairs and saying, "Hey, this is our house. You you got to get this gear out of here." <laughs> I mean, we had taken over the whole upstairs of our house. Okay. And this was before we had kids, and so uh-huh. I said, "Hey, man, we, you know, because my brother and I, Toby and I had, we had always loved going back to when we were teenagers, and we had four track cassette recorders." We love recording gear, so as soon as we had any money, we started buying stuff. And that expanded and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> so we opened up a small studio in Dallas. And as we were kind of waiting on record companies and all that kind of stuff, we started producing bands. Hmm. So, you know, and we got a few of those bands' record deals. Sure. And so okay. that kind of, you know, a light bulb went off in my head. Hey, as a band... You you live and die by the next record you make or the next mm-hmm. record that the label puts out as a producer. You can make as many records as you have the energy to make. Right. And so we started doing that. We, <clears throat> and we were crazy into recording studios and producing young bands and trying to just give them the opportunity that we had. You know, so uh-huh. we would record it as, as, as realistic a cost as we could possibly do it and try to make it sound like you you know spent a million dollars on right. the record. And you've stayed in Dallas this whole time. All of this is Yeah, we out just of stayed Dallas, there. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, the home record technically was a demo, I suppose. I mean, we just mm. went into a studio, got borrowed some money, went and made a record. It cost less than $6,000. Wow. So, oh. it, we knew the power of just capturing the moment, and so that's yeah. kind of what we did as producers. We did that for a long time. I mean, almost 10 years, really. And then my son was started entering into school and stuff, and I mm-hmm. was really kind of burning out as a producer because when you start doing something that you love, you realize that you're working seven days a week. Sure, yeah. For three sure. years. And, yeah. and so I stepped back from the studio, let some of our younger engineers kind of take over the day-to-day, and I've kind of found myself with nothing to do. So the first thing I did then was make a solo record, which is Tar and yep. Puddles.
train that cannot end beneath it as soon as that was finished we had gotten word at his at my son's school I was up there for like a Thanksgiving party or Christmas party or something or other and they mm-hmm. said hey parents in the upper school we need some substitute teachers if if anyone has a flexible oh, okay. schedule and I thought man I'm not doing anything yeah give mm-hmm. me a call and they said really and I said yeah absolutely you know and so I did that for a little bit and I thought you know what I wouldn't mind being really involved with my kids education I happen to have a master's degree in English, you know, and next thing you know, I'm in an interview and they said, we need someone with a master's degree that can teach our college English program. So I actually got hired by a college to come wow. in and I, and I teach college English at the school where my kids go. Good so, for you. Yeah. I still have Interesting. A, my, my, my kids aren't old enough for me to teach them yet. My son's only a freshman and my daughter's in uh, sixth grade, but they'll be wow. there soon enough. And so I do that yeah. and I co- coach soccer and so that's how I spend my days. <laughs> really? And it, and it is crazy. So one of the things that I try to kind of focus on on this podcast are the transitions that artists make in their careers. Because there's a moment when you're nobody, and then there's a moment when you're suddenly sort of a rock star. Yeah. And what that transition is like from, you know, sort of achieving your dream. But the downside is there's a moment when you transition out of being a rock star. Right. Yeah. When you transition yeah. away from that, some people it's by force. Some people yeah. are dropped. Some people have to come to terms. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. always a pretty transition to make, but it sounds like you did it in a lot of ways on your own terms. Is that true? Or was there some like angst about you know the music career? Just it didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to. Or are you satisfied it, when you look back? Yeah, no, when I look back, completely satisfied. It wasn't Good. what I thought it was going to be, but it was I, – I, I could sense with the entire band because, you know, we, we toured the home album around and around and around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last thing we did really was we went number one in the U.K., you know, and then we finally came home to make the Byzantium record. But I could get a sense from everyone kind of – once that process began, because it's one thing to make a record on your own and a mm. record company comes in and buys it from you. And you have mm. done that, and it's 100% the band's effort, right down to the artwork, sure. everything, it's you. And then you're signed to a major label. And I remember John had this great summation of everything. It's like when you sign a record deal, you compromise every single aspect mm. of who you are. Mm-hmm. And he was right. I know bands that signed a record deal, the record never came out, and they didn't even get to keep their name. So things things can get really crazy, but I kind of got a sense from everyone once all that weirdness started happening because it was the panic of making the second record and them trying to micromanage what we were doing. They're like, Mm. just leave us alone. We've made you millions and millions of dollars. Don't we just get to go make whatever we want just like we did? It's not even going to cost you anything. Yeah, This Um, is a story that that comes up. Yeah, and I got it's like we we it. were successful doing what we do, and why would you want to tinker with that? Why compromise? Yeah. Like you just said, we gave you all this stuff. I mean, the more I dig into these interviews and the more I talk to people about record politics and how that's mm-hmm. what ultimately ends up affecting people's careers, it's none of it makes sense to me most often. Yeah, it's, it's like it's we love weird. you, but we want you to change. 
Well, then yeah. you don't really love me. Or, or we're, <laughs> not sure, we're not sure what we don't know, what we're not sure about. You know, yeah. Uh, or yeah. a great line, and even Tom Petty put it in one of his songs, you know, I, I don't hear a lead-off single. Like, well, what the yeah. heck does that mean? Well, you know, you've got a lot of really good singles. We think there's hits on this. You know, this, this was the Byzantium album that we made. Uh, we don't know if there's a lead-off single, and we're going, Yeah. wouldn't that just be the first one that you pick? What the heck? You know. Right. And so we just right. got the vibe from everybody that we had gone to the top of the mountain mm-hmm. and looked around and just didn't really feel like doing the things that it was going to take to stay there. Mm-hmm. Like, I think mm-hmm. there has to be an inherent need to be famous to get you to do the things yeah. that you have to do, and that was yeah. never us. Okay. It it never was. There was no desire for fame. There was only a desire to, we want to make music, and we'd like to be able to do it professionally, but it's not about being famous. I remember even when the home album was you know, still an independent release before we got signed, there was a big discussion on whether or not we were even going to include a picture of ourselves. Oh, so We just really? wanted it to be, here's the band, yeah. listen yeah. to it. it. We wanted to be sort of, and this sounds very weird, mm-hmm. a sort of more pop version of Pink Floyd. To where oh. it doesn't oh. matter. It doesn't matter yeah. what we look like or who we are. Uh-huh. We're just gonna make music. So that was kind of the thing. And so mm. when it all sort of started falling apart with the record labels, when they started firing everybody, yeah. and all that stuff started happening, I got to a point. I guess it would have been like around 1999, where I was just going. You know, I think I'd rather produce anyway. If this happens to work out, that's great. But you know, uh-huh. it doesn't. I don't really huh. care. And so then okay. the next year, we signed with Ezra Records, which is a part of EMI, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And my son was born, and I was out on the road when September 11th happened, and I just kind of went, oh. eh, you know. Yeah. Eh. And I remember my wife, actually, and this was the only time she had ever, you know, she said, you know, I think it might be time to come home. And I went, yeah. Mm. <laughs> now, this might be a hard question, and forgive me if it is, but was the influence in that in that those answers, was it ever like diminishing crowds or diminishing sales or, you know what I'm saying? Like, was it that Deep Blue something was sort of on the other side of the hump or was it really not that apparent? There was still enough interest and kind of. Yeah. Well, that that was the thing even in, you know, in in 2001 when we were kind of touring the the self-titled album, Mm -hmm. we'd go to radio stations and they're, Man, we're still spinning Tiffany's twenty-five times a week. <laughs> oh, and so you'd yeah. go play, yeah. and people thought that it was still a new song kind of thing. Yeah, I could so see that. So it's sort of like yeah. it never really died, and we're going, well, you yeah. know, that's awesome. We have mm-hmm. this new record. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. It was never. You're fighting to get just, people to hear the new stuff. They're still hung up on the old stuff. Yeah, which was, you know, that was really kind of what killed our second single on Home.
build Halo because yeah. they just couldn't squeeze in another one. We saw we were kind of fighting ourselves. But mm-hmm. no, it was it was always kind of more. It's just not worth what it's going to take, and okay. that was just our whole deal, really. See, that's interesting because regular people think. I'm guessing what would be better in this world than being a rock star, you know, not even necessarily fame or money, but all of it together, the whole package. And you're smart enough and have, you know, enough peace of mind to be able to know when it's time to walk away and be comfortable with that. Yeah, and it sounds like we, you are. Yeah, we we had, I mean, again, you, you got to remember how much we, how much time we spent on the road before we got started. Yeah, cool. And True. so we yeah. had done the whole eternal spring break endless summer touring yeah, thing before yeah. we got our record deal and then we yeah. did it even more and so and and that is fun don't let anyone tell you that riding around in a tour bus and playing shows it man some of the things we laughed at in the back of that bus every single mm-hmm. night that was fantastic it was so funny and you know it, and it was a great thing to experience you know your day begins and the entire effort of the band, crew, everyone involved is to get to showtime. Sure. And you do the show, and then, you know, the relaxation and the stress dropping after the show and everyone being together, that's mm-hmm. a great way to spend a day. It yeah. really is. It's excruciating, yeah. and you cannot imagine how tiring it can become. I believe But it. we did it. We did it as yeah. much as a human can do it. Yeah. So anything after that would have only been a repetition of the same thing. Right. You know, and, and I remember yeah. Merle Haggard saying one time, the road is a place for young men and drug addicts. And if, <laughs> if you're not either, it's going to kill you. We yeah. had done the young man thing, and we were, right. you know, we had done it. So, yeah, to to have done it again, I'm telling you, it, it, it just, it has not to fair. have some sort of different drive that we didn't, have we we did as much yeah. as we needed to do good okay it's really cool well that's healthy <laughs> that is great so you never know when bands disappear you don't know if they go away on their terms or someone else's and how they feel about it and to hear that you're fine uh, that is that's like a huge relief that's very comforting to know because you oh, deserved yeah. it right well good yeah, for I you we did our thing we did our time good, good. okay that's healthy now one thing i was thinking about with you guys is are there ever, like, do you ever get invited to play kind of, I don't know if there even are 90s Rewind festivals going on. There's, There's not, always an ebb and flow, right? There's an 80s nostalgia yeah. is in for a while, and then it dips down, and then 90s nostalgia comes back and goes back yeah. and forth. And we're not really, I don't think, in the throes of a 90s nostalgia period yeah. right now, but has there been? Do you get invited to those things? We usually get kind of an, a few invites to sort of the spring festival things, you know, May Day festivals here and there, okay. and, you know, and we always have, you know, and every once in a while, even going back, because you, you also have to remember, too, the band never really, like, slammed on the brakes. We mm. just slowed okay. way, 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 way down. Okay. And so we'll, we'll still even, you know, like it back in 2004, 2005, would sneak out and play five shows oh, and come back and not do anything for a year. Okay. You know, we get invited to a festival in Wisconsin. So you play a couple of shows yeah. on the way up, you do the festival, you come back. And and so that kind of satisfies the need for that mm-hmm. and the and the kind of the fun of it. But yeah, I I was thinking the other day it it probably would be smart for a promoter somewhere to get some of these 90s bands cuz that was the whole yeah. thing at the time is how right. hip it was to see live music and the 90s bands were really solid 
Yeah, live. big time. Yeah. I mean, great live band. Totally. That, I mean, you could probably squeeze together something pretty good. I mean, I would it would always be interesting to see what the people look like. I, <laughs> some of those yeah. some of those 80s metal things, you kind of go, well, maybe the spandex wasn't such a good right. idea. But right. you, you still sound good, you know. <laughs> I don't know. That's true. Well, I'm sure it's just a matter of time before there's, you know, 90s versions of regeneration yeah. tours out there, and there's you guys and Eat Six and Blind Melon and, you know, yeah, there's yeah. all these Luscious Jackson or whoever, all those bands from that era are yeah, back out there doing festivals and stuff, making big money. Let me ask you a question about tip Breakfast at Tiffany's then. Mm-hmm. Could you live off money made from just the success of that song? Could that uh, pay your bills forever? Uh, I mean, the one good thing is we, because it was an independent release and we had sold so many records as an indie, the deal we signed was amazing. Good. You know, I mean, not, not not just the upfront money, because we were savvy enough to know, well, they're just handing you your own money. Yeah. You're not getting a yeah. penny back until you recoup that. So our focus really was on the percentage. Okay. And so the percentage we got was the percentage that Prince had just negotiated himself oh, to get. And we said, wow. that's the percentage we want. Right on. And, and, and so... We were definitely thankful for that, and I think everybody was pretty smart about what they did, you know, with their money and and things like that. I don't know as far as only doing that. Yeah, I guess you you could, but I don't know that I could do it. Like, I don't know that I could not do anything. I think I'd go crazy. Okay. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I, sure. I don't really know. I'm not saying you'd um, want to live off that, but if you, because yeah. again, we we don't know. Regular people don't know what's all involved on the business side of yeah. of music. So that was a huge hit. I was just looking. Just I have Spotify in front of me, and that song's been played almost twenty six million times. You know, and then, so that means um, from Spotify we got thirteen dollars. I bet. <laughs> Golly, man! That. Spotify and that. YouTube. It's like I just yeah. don't see how that's legal. <laughs> There's nothing out of YouTube, is there? I mean, Spotify is not. Something that, that I, there I, is. I, don't, I don't really understand how it breaks down, but I'm sitting there going, yeah. you know, there's a there's a few different versions of Brex Tiffany's, and I think one of them has like 10 million. I don't know what it is. I'm just thinking, right? You know, if only half of those people just bought a single. I, I know. Mean, are you kidding me? Or what I if know. they got really crazy and a few of them bought the whole album? Yeah. I mean, and yet. We're not getting paid in the Spotify thing because a lot of my students are always mentioned, hey, I, I was listening to such and such on Spotify, and I said, you know, I'll leave my keys right here, and you can go steal my truck, too, if you'd like. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? I said, whatever, just go away. <laughs> oh, man. I know what you mean. I was I interviewed early on. I interviewed a guy. He was in a band called The Kings who had yeah. one hit in 1980 with This Beat yeah. Goes On, Switching Glide. You might remember that song. Yeah, yeah. Killer, killer song. He was saying, and this is, that song was never as big as Tiffany's, but he was saying, you know, our video on YouTube gets played a thousand times a day. And if even a small percentage of those people would yeah. pay the 9.99 for the whole album, 
everything would be different, but they don't, you know? And isn't that interesting? You can attract a thousand people a day, and in your case, it's much bigger, but in, in his case, a thousand people a day watch this six and a half minute video, but they can't be motivated to go buy the song or go buy the album. And the album's great. It's like, if you like this, wouldn't you want 12 other things that sound just as good as this? You know what I, I mean? I know. Yes, I read an interview with with T Bone Burnett. Do you know him, he, the producer? Uh-huh, of course. Okay. Yeah, big time. And and he he mentioned you know people will spend five dollars a day on a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. but right. they which which is gone in ten yeah. minutes. Yeah. But they won't just spend a dollar on a song that they get to keep forever. I know. You know, imagine if I people know. spent just two dollars a day on songs. Because again, it's not the bands, you know. It, it's it's not Metallica who's mm-hmm. really being hurt, but right. it is those bands. Maybe the, you know they were they barely got above local level, but you still loved them. They mm-hmm. they could have kind of continued if the music business wasn't so crazy. But when yeah. when people can't fathom that it is stealing, yeah, it's it's just <laughs> I don't know. I just find it comedic at just the the sheer amount of it. Like it's yeah. just unreal how much. Well, it's no, become that's something valueless. like Spotify that actually keeps track of it. Like you can yeah. see that, you know, you yeah. can see YouTube. Imagine yeah. what's out there that you don't know about. I mean, because oh, totally. you got to think, you know, we're kind of cresting the wave at sort of the dawn of the internet. You know, yeah. Napster and yeah. all that stuff came later. Imagine the amount of downloads that happened before people even really understood what it oh, was. Oh, of course. Oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, my. Gosh, and the fact yeah. that we still, you know, made money, that's astounding. Yeah. You know this. You lucked out. I mean, you guys hit it, you know, within a couple of years of it mm-hmm. all going away. Yeah, I mean, you guys exactly. were, you know, a last bastion of, like, wealth yeah. or, you know, sustainability from mm-hmm. a hit record. It doesn't yeah. exist anymore. I mean, you I'm know this. You. But it's just you made and it. And you feel so bad for those bands because I hear yeah. records all the time, brand-new artists. And you think, wow, this is fantastic. And then you figure out they haven't sold anything. No. The only thing they're, you know, your hopes right now is, as a young artist, or anyone for that matter, is to just try to get on a Volkswagen commercial. Right, it to is. To be played in the background of a Target ad. <laughs> That's the only way you That's get it. anywhere now. And I feel I know, like I'm just true. going, oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah. Good luck to it's you. It's so rough. It's rough. It is. Well, when you were talking about producing bands, I mean mm-hmm. – I'm guessing you're producing smaller independent bands and yeah. no big record company, I don't think, or maybe this was when they were still sort of throwing money at producers to produce that kind of stuff. You were able to pay your bills and sustain a career for a while producing oh, small yeah, inter- yeah. independent the, bands. Okay. Yeah, that was, and that was, you know, pretty solid. You know, the, the budgets, and again, we were trying to keep it to where the budgets weren't super high. We just tried to, you know, put out good, stuff and so so that the the stream of work would be steady that was really our goal um okay. you know we got a few bands record deals and that kind of thing um Good. but at the time it it was sort of the rise of the independent studio and you could do things on a budget and and really make things sound solid you know it, it was kind of you didn't have to go to a studio that was costing you three thousand dollars a day mm-hmm you know, okay. we could do it at a fraction of that, and so it, sure. it, 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 for and a while. And you own the studio, even, right? Yeah, and we we own the studio, yeah. and so you know we could make all that happen. And that was even when the record companies were kind of biting the dust. There was still kind of this undercurrent of 
independent label energy and independent bands that were still kind of seizing the power of the Internet mm-hmm. and some of those other okay. things. And so there for a few years, the independent studio, independent producer, independent label relationship was really pretty solid. And you could really get a lot of things going. But even eventually, again, as the wave kind of crested and the, crashed onto the shore, that's what really got wiped out ahead of everything else. Yeah. You know, the independent scene. It was just, it was so bad. There was no point in printing up like, you know, hard CD copies and that kind sure. of thing. I mean, vinyls mm-hmm. made a bit of a, of a resurgence, but, you know. Yeah. All of yeah. that's kind of faded away too, sadly. So yeah. I'm, I'm actually yeah. glad, you know, when we shut the doors on our studio that we did that in the nick of time, really, because yeah. other big studios were biting the dust too. It was rough. Interesting. Now, okay, I know I'm all over the place, but I meant to ask you this sooner. Byzantium, it was delayed, and then it was only released in certain parts of the world. I know, mm-hmm. I I know we're kind of going backtracking now, but yeah, yeah. How, what was that like on your morale? I can't imagine you've just come off a hit. Like you said, you've been touring the world for a couple of years, yeah. and your next album, which in most cases would be anticipated, right? Here's oh, a band yeah. that we believe in. They make a new album, but it just flounders, yeah. basically. It, it was it was crazy because we demoed all these songs, we had done all these songs, and they kept kind of one more songing us to death. Just, mm. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is, oh my God, guys, we got we got hits here. We just need that one, you know, again, the lead-off single. And so, the, <laughs> and so finally we went and did the record, and the producers, you know, Charles Fisher produced it. We had, you know, Tim, uh, Joe Ciccarelli engineered it, Tim Palmer mixed it, and everybody involved was going, hey, man, I think this is, pretty solid here mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. i'm you know because everybody's going man this sounds like we're, you could go five singles deep on this thing this is sure. this is kind of epic everybody was yeah. just kind of like wow this is really something here and you know the british press had gotten an advanced copy of the single she is who am i to say what i believe the way things should be What am I to think What I got Is what everyone wants So what makes you so perfect Me out in the tip sheet in the UK press this is going to be the song of the year holy crap if you thought Brexit no was as big you wait till you hear this right on and we're going okay cool and Interscope was saying no it sounds too beatly beatly things don't work what and then we're going yeah but what about you know Come like trick or there's sure. something that's going on right now they're real big they're called Oasis have you heard of them <laughs> You know, and they just weren't hearing it, and so they were like, "Look, if you let this record come out and it flops, you're sunk. You're in bad trouble. Do not let the UK office release this record because if it doesn't do anything other than go straight to number one in all form, you know, you're done." Yeah. And so we just kind of went, "Okay." So we told the UK, "Don't release it," and everybody's going, 
Why not? Like, well, Interscope is our parent label, and they're not going to give us any tour support. You know, <laughs> you know, you're not going to be able to send us over there to do anything. It's going to be sink or swim, and we don't know. And they just said, oh, I guess we can just hold off. And then, uh, and so somewhere though, and I think it was Sweden or somebody weird didn't kind of get the memo, <laughs> and so they released it. Oh, okay. But had no promotion budget, had nothing, mm-hmm. and it came out, and people were kind of, you know, uh, I, I think it came out in Denmark as well, mm-hmm. and everybody was really excited, and everybody went, well, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> And then that's when everybody started getting fired, and Interscope said, we've got to put this whole thing on hold. You know, All the A&R guys were getting fired, so the ones that were still there, including ours, was like hiding under his desk, hoping uh-huh. that nobody walked by and saw yeah. him. Yeah. You know? And so the record just kind of got frozen in ice, and that's the story of that record. Oh, Rob. There's went, some good stuff on there. Park bench. It's so much I, fun and peppy and I think some really good stuff on there too. I just it's just one of those records that gets lost. No in lead summer. single. Park bench yeah. is fine as a third single, but not the first single. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. That's so weird. Well that must have been I mean, that must have just taken a lot of the wind out of your sails. If you weren't ready to kind of pack up and go back to normal, I'm sure the Byzantium yeah, we were just, experience kinda of going, dude, you know. Yeah. Okay, here you go. Just I'm gonna go back to producing. Yeah. You know, I told my manager, look, if you can find another deal, that's awesome, but I got stuff to do now. Yeah. And okay. that's kinda of what everybody's you know, John was already had some business ventures happening and that kind of thing. Yeah, we were just kinda of like, uh, Okay, well fun. <laughs> did you guys ever leave Texas? No. We we uh, looking back, I mean then there was a time that I think Right after home, it would have made the most sense to probably move to Germany or the UK mm-hmm. as, a, as a base of operations and just sure. get out of, you know, because we had a real issue, and I think it, it was a mistake signing with a California company. As, long, as I know this is going to sound weird, but huh. we're used to getting up and getting to work, and if we've signed our lives to you, I need you to be in the office working at eight o'clock in the morning. Right. Now, I understand huh? there is a time zone difference. Right. Which means for me, you're getting in at ten. But here's the thing: you're not getting in at your eight o'clock in the morning. You're getting in uh-huh. at your ten o'clock in the morning. And I'm calling your secretary, and you came in for five minutes, and then you went straight to lunch for two yeah. hours. Oh man. Oh man. And it was man. just that kind. Of, everything was so laid back, and hey man. Yeah. 
and we're just yeah. going. Again, well, those are the heady like music like, business days, right? When there was still millions of dollars floating around. At you least get as off, far as they knew it at the time, it. man. Yeah, and right. You'd wait. And it's like two o'clock in the afternoon, and you're just waiting for your morning phone call of just trying yeah. to get simple logistical things done. Yeah. Oh, it drove us crazy. It drove yeah, us man. insane. So I don't know yeah. if the New York company would have been any better, but man. Okay. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's a crazy. different perspective. No, that makes sense though. Yeah. That's I, I mean, bad. psychologically, I needed somebody. I needed the big guy in a three-piece suit smoking the cigar be- behind a desk saying, totally. "Here's the plan." Totally. And I did yeah. not ever get that. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Yeah. You know, and I just think work. psychologically having the somebody who's a time zone ahead of me. That would have yeah. made me more confident, even though it probably would have been no different. Well, and you want to feel like you're taken care of, right? You want to feel like you matter. You want to feel like you're in the hands of people that know what they're doing with you and yeah, not that you're good... kind of floating around trying to figure it yeah. out yourselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's – yeah. You want to, yeah. You want to be in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. And yeah. know, there's a lot of times in the music business you're just going – now, how did you get this job? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did you ever get to meet any heroes? I don't even know. Did you like tour? Did you open for some band that you love? We talked a lot about those '80s bands, Cure, Depeche Mode. Did you ever get to yeah. rub shoulders with anybody? Who'd you meet? Mm-hmm. Tell me some good rock and roll stories. Uh, a couple of good ones. I mean, one, you know, one one show that was particularly legendary. And it, this was actually before we got signed. We, you know, we obviously in the, as an independent and especially in the Dallas area, we were a huge draw. Mm-hmm. And Oasis was touring their first record, mm-hmm. and they were having a little bit of trouble selling tickets, and so they were getting kind of, you know, bigger local openers. Wow. And so somebody said, "I got the perfect bill for Dallas. Get them mm-hmm. here." And so we played this biggish venue with the the two of us, and man, that that was a crazy night. <laughs> wow, I bet. It Did was, you like actually hang out with them? No, because uh, Liam Gallagher had fallen and hurt his foot or something weird, oh. so he wasn't at the sound check. Really? But I turn around halfway through our set, and he's like dancing around behind our amplifiers. Oh, and that was hilarious. But that, that okay. was basically legendary show. I mean, it got it was just was it got really out of hand. But beyond that. We didn't really open for. I mean, we opened for Alanis Morissette and got kicked off uh-huh. of that tour. That really? Tour. Why? Okay, you want the real lowdown? Yeah, I do. Okay. Of course. Okay. Again, we have toured these songs for years. Okay? Uh-huh. Night after night after night. Right. I know she's great. Her record sold 10 billion copies. I guess. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But at the time. She had just put her touring band together. Okay, Taylor Hawkins played drums. He's obviously uh-huh. awesome. Jesse yep. Tobias was playing guitar. He's obviously awesome. The other two guys, I don't remember them. But they haven't played together that much. Okay? We punished that poor band. Oh, my God. It was horrific. It was like you had slapped someone's grandmother. Okay? <laughs> Even going back to the early days, we invested money in having lights and you know, we wanted it to be a big rock show, and so that's how we played. And so the first night was in Tempe or something like that, and they tell us, hey, you can't use your lights anymore. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I get it. We're the opening act. We can't use our lights. Fine. You can use the lights mm-hmm. in the venue, and that's it. Okay. Okay. The night after that was, I think, San Jose, and 
I am telling you, we dropped the stinking hammer on that band. Really? I even remember passing them in the hallway, and I just said, don't choke on that. This is going to be rough. <laughs> and they kind of looked at me, because we, 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 had, we had an encore the whole bit. Oh, um, nice. And we told our light guy, just just make it white. Just turn all the yeah. lights on. Just We're going to just, okay. Sure. And so, so they had that thing happening. And then their sound man was an idiot, okay? Mm-hmm. And that didn't right. help him at all. And Because I even went back to the soundboard and all he had in the front of house was her vocal. The rest of it was just their stage volume. Really? And he was like, this is how great this band is. All I have is – and I was just going, dude, Uh-oh. you're yeah. not helping the cause. And halfway through the show, <laughs> the place was completely empty. Oh, no way. Yeah, and this was, so, was this on her way up, or had she – No, no, yeah, she, this was on the – yeah, we, yeah we, the record had just – come out i mean it was it was already happening everybody was okay. flipping out and all this stuff don't get me wrong okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. she was Alanis. <laughs> okay so the the next night we got to seattle and we're playing this mm. supposed to be legendary club in seattle but the stage is really shallow and their guitar tech had taken up like a quarter of the stage with his i don't know what he was doing mm-hmm. and they said yeah, we're just going to need you guys to set up in front. We're not striking the drums. Like, mm. Okay, we set up in front before, but the stage is only three feet deep. You want us to line up across in a line like we're on right. some sort of right. 60s TV show? I said, yeah. That's I said, let me tell you, this is not happening. We're not, no, we're not doing this. I understand what's going on here, and we can play this game as much as you want, but we're killing you, and you know that. Yeah. We're not setting up in front. And so I just said, we'll see you later. And so we went and got on the bus. Their road manager dude comes out there and, of course, gives us, if you do this, you're off the tour. I said, that's okay. I don't like this tour anyway. This sucks. <laughs> he said, if you do this, you'll never work again. I said, okay, we'll come back to Texas. <laughs> so he's like, and, okay, guys, just, okay, look, I'm sorry, but the stage is shallow. This is how we have to do it. Just come on, guys. You just got to get back uh-huh. in there. Just come on. And I said, okay, man, all right, look. Okay, you're right. I'm sorry. I was you know, letting my ego get in charge. You know, I'm uh-huh. sorry. We'll be in there in just a little bit. Just let me regroup. He said, okay. So he gets off the bus, <laughs> locked the door, and told the driver, he said, go. And so we just left. <laughs> and, so I, and so I, you know, I call our manager and said, hey, man, you know, we're, we're not on the tour anymore and laid it down. Uh-huh. And they, they were all happy with it, but – and then we run into Taylor Hawkins in the hotel lobby, and his eyes were all big. And we're like, look, dude, we're not mad. We're not going to hit right. you or anything. Just right. You'll have a better night tonight than you would have, but yeah. good luck to you. And, of course, oh, he's gone no. on to fantastic things. But yeah. that, was a little, yeah. <laughs> that was a little rough. Man, I thought wow. for him. Oh, those are great stories. Yes. But, yeah. you know, and, and I think that we're, like, really, really, really competitive like when we play live, I don't know. Yeah, where I can it, tell. Like we 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 can be buds off stage. Sure. But when the we game play, face goes on. I yeah. want you to genuinely wish that you could be somewhere else if you're <laughs> in a, like. I want you to wish that you didn't play the bass. Like I want to the other bass players involved to just not want to play anymore. And I know that that's not really musiciany. But well, <laughs> that's how I think some, that's actually really musiciany in some ways. It's, I don't, a lot of those it's, bands feel that way, really competitive with each other, especially at, like, festivals and things. Yeah, oh, man, festivals were great, yeah. 
Yeah. So, but other than uh, that, as far as meeting people, we did. We were on top of the pops, and I. Oh really? I met, oh good. I, yeah, we were on top of the pops like five times. Oh. And and one day, one time we were there, and I think it was actually the 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 time when we we were actually number one, which was like that's the time you want to be there. Sure. And so I'm kind of walking down the hall. And I'm looking at these pictures on the wall of the BBC. And I see this dude down at the other end of the hall, and he's he's dressed in tweed, like from head to toe. <laughs> and so he's he's looking at pictures, the other, you know. And so we're mm-hmm. both kind of on the same wall, looking at pictures, slowly working our way towards these. Others. And I, I kind of look again. And I went, "Wow, that's that's Phil Collins. He's right there." You know, because you can diss Phil Collins all you want. I love. Whatever. But no, as a musician, I'm fine with Phil Collins. Look, yep. I mean, the stuff he did with Genesis, that's one thing. The stuff he did, if you only looked at what he did with Brian Eno as just yeah. the drummer, or yep. the stuff he did as just the drummer on those Robert Plant albums. Right, come right. on, dude. Yep, right on. Okay. Totally so agree. He's coming down the hallway, and he said, hey, how's it going? And I went, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Sure. And I thought, wow, that's that's a lot of tweed. I mean, his <laughs> hat was tweed, his jacket was tweed, his vest oh, no was tweed. Way. He was oh, tweeted out. And oh, so, that's great. So then we, I, I went back to the dressing room and I said, hey man, Phil Collins is on the show today. I just saw him in the hallway, and because we had like the night before been on the bus, in and I think we were in Sweden actually. And we oh. were listening to the live Genesis album, Seconds Out, which I don't uh-huh. think is as good as Three Sides Live, but Seconds Out is really, really good. Okay. And we were all listening to it going, man, they had they had to have overdubbed. Come on. You, uh-huh. This cannot be 100. They had to. And so we said, hey, we're going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so I sent, I sent the, one of the assistants at the BBC, hey, will you go tell Bill Collins that we, we want to meet him? And so... He, he said, yeah, I'll go do that. So he went and asked and came back, and what, what did he say? And he said, do they really want to meet me? <laughs> he said, yeah. So next thing you know, we're all out in the hallway. And so we're just kind of surrounding this guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, man, we were listening to Seconds Out on the bus. And he said, why? Because <laughs> it's really good. Really? Yeah. And he was just dumbfounded. I think, A, that we even knew what that particular record, much less that we were listening to it, and we had questions. Said, sure. Hey, you got a level with me, and I won't tell. Did y'all? Did you overdub anything on there? He said, truthfully, we had to fix one of the Rickenbacker guitars. Had this god awful buzz, and so on the song that that guitar was used, we had to fix it. It ruined everything. He said that's the only thing we fixed. No way. And he said, back in those days, man, if it said live album. It was live, and he sure. said, "That's live, you know." But we had to fix that one thing because it was just buzzing, and we had to fix. Oh it. man! And he was just dumbfounded that we were listening to that record. I said, "Look, man, you know, we're we're sincere fans, man." And he was the nicest guy, and good. We so we said, "Hey, you know, we're gonna go out afterwards," and he said, "Oh, you know, I'd love to, but I'm flying my helicopter back to Switzerland." Flying <laughs> my oh, helicopter. Sure. I was going sure, to do that, too. I was going to fly back to Dallas, but my helicopter's in the shop. Of course, I, I get it, bro. You know, I, I love Phil Collins. I feel, I feel like he gets a bad rap for, 
Who knows what reason? It's one of those things that people people who have limited musical knowledge just throw out stupid opinions, and they don't get it. It was like for years when people kind of dissed on Journey. Do you really realize what those – are you really listening to the songs and what they're doing? Yes. And how they're disguising some really intricate things into the form of a pop song, which makes it even more difficult to pull off. Agreed. just did the same thing. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, that's a whole different kind of level of rock star. When you're, yeah, it you're is, right? Switzerland, and you just kind of flew in for the afternoon to, just to be on top of the pops. Like, is that So he was on the same episode as you? Yeah, because his, his okay. record had just come out. I think it was Dance Into the Light. I think that's yeah. what it was. And so it was kind yeah. of like a preview of, of the new single, okay. and so he was on there. Huh. Yeah, that was cool. I think uh, oh, man. Belinda Carlisle was on there. She was super nice, and we'd actually run into her several times before. She was super nice. Oh, here's what's weird about that, actually. I kept forgetting. Nick Beggs from Kajagoogoo was sure. her bass uh-huh. player. And and we had run into each other at this other, like, we had taped an acoustic set, and, they, and Belinda did an acoustic set. And so, yeah, I was totally – because he he loves to talk gear and basses and stuff. Oh, and yeah, so we're he's talking great. And Belinda Carlisle standing there going, dear – God, Talk about people me. who are so much more than what the perception of them out there. I mean, most people yeah. think Kajagoogoo and they think one thing. That guy's a yeah. musician. He's oh, really good at what he does. Yeah, and he's super nice dude. He was doing a tour with Robert Fripp a while back, mm-hmm. Nick, Nick Beggs, and then he also did some stuff with Porcupine Tree. Or what's the main – do you know Porcupine Tree, that band? I've heard of them. I follow him on Facebook, and he's out there promoting some band right now that's – it's a lot of, like, almost prog, like yeah, yeah. type okay. stuff. The, yeah, that's the guy, yeah, that's the guy from Porcupine Tree. Yeah. That's a great band, but I know he was kind of playing in those circles too. Yeah. He, on, on most of that stuff, he's doing that Chapman stick, which is a whole different kind of instrument. But yeah, and that's huh. you gotta you gotta be serious playing that thing. That's unreal. I will look up Porcupine Tree. Yeah, good and stuff. I know that name, but I don't think I've ever really uh, listened to them. Wow, there's a yeah. lot of it. Okay, well that's cool. I mean, it's gotta be fun to have these great stories floating around in your head. I mean, when you're teaching your class and you got these this room full of I talked to another guy I don't know if you remember Walter Egan he had one hit in 1978 with Magnet and Steel such a nice man and he's mostly he's still out there doing stuff it's on a much smaller level but uh, he's also a substitute teacher in this high school in Nashville Magnet and Steel was produced by Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham during the rumor period and and Walter and and Stevie had like an affair for a couple of weeks and he was madly in love with her and they dated and then that was it 
I don't know who she moved on to, probably Mick Fleetwood. I mean, the story of rumors, it's, this is going on during that period, right? Wow. Sto- most famous, like, drama soap opera ever. And I'm just imagining this guy who's in his 70s now, teaching high school kids, and they have no idea that right. he has a memory of having sex with one of the most famous women on earth. You know what I mean? I, I know that sounds crass, but it's just the stuff that people like you, that you were rock stars there, you were living it, and you've got these things floating around in your head that regular passers-by would never believe, but they're there. Yeah, and they're there, and the, and the crazy thing is, and you know, some of it's on the internet. <laughs> so, yeah, like I, <laughs> my first year at this school, you know, because I, you know, I, I was teaching college English and I was also coaching girls soccer, and I, and I loved the girls; they were awesome. But God, man, they were crazy. And one of them mm-hmm. had looked online, and they found my cover of Playgirl online. Oh, I didn't even know this. Oh, dude. Okay. <laughs> So one of the guys comes into the room oh, boy. and kind of stands in this particular way. And I thought, why is he standing that way? And then I realized that's how I'm standing on the cover of Playgirl. Oh, oh I'm, I thought, I'm Google oh, imaging man. it right now. And I, thought, I thought this guy, you know, and I thought, oh, dude, this guy's looked me up. I said, hey, man, you know, you know. And he said, dude, you, you shouldn't be talking to me. There's pictures of it all up and down the hallway. And I go out and I go down the main hallway and they have made photocopies of my Playgirl cover and it's plastered on all the lockers and I'm just... Oh, no. Oh, yeah, because this isn't just a private school. I mean, this is a Christian private school. Oh, whoa. On the one hand, I'm thinking, surely before they hired me, they did just a quick internet search surely that this isn't going to be news and i quickly got them all down because this had kind of happened in in the middle of a period and so i I got them all down before the whole school saw it but plenty saw it plenty saw it and the other thing that was good was this was like the day before graduation or was very close to the end of the school year so i had the summer buffer but i did get called into the principal's office (laughs) yeah you did he said hey and i said hey yeah. yeah. So. He said, so um, I said, hey, hey, I I am not naked in the magazine. Okay, it was a music issue. You know, there's lots of bands in it. I'm on the cover. He said, yeah, you're on the cover with your shirt off. And I said, look, uh-huh. I spent most of the '90s with my shirt off. <laughs> Just you're gonna have to get used to this. Part. Yeah. He said, but you're yeah. on the cover. And I said, yeah, you know. But yeah. I I promise you this is the extent of it that there's no mag pictures from inside the magazine uh-huh. that you need to be Good. concerned about. But okay. yeah, so that kind of well, thing yeah. There's and then, um, of course you know my whenever my whenever I call my son I think it comes up on his phone that's the picture. Really? Yeah. Oh no. Oh yeah, all his friends think it's the funniest thing in the universe. So. One thing I, I forgot to mention, if you don't mind me doing this, mm-hmm. <laughs> they've done a documentary about Tiffany's, the jewelry store, and it's called Crazy About Tiffany's. I'm actually in the documentary, too, because you know, it goes through the history of the jewelry store, and then it comes to how much exposure the store got because of the movie. You know, And so they go into uh-huh. the Rex of Tiffany's movie, 
and then it eventually gets to the Brexit Tiffany song. And so I'm interviewed in the documentary oh. as part of kind of the big history of Tiffany's. I've seen the whole documentary, and it's fantastic. It's so well done, oh, wow. and I didn't know a lot of the history of Tiffany's, too, but it'll be on iTunes. But Gravitas is the distributor, and it's just a really okay. well-done thing. But, yeah, it's, it, Very it's cool. pretty funny and interesting, and I like documentaries anyway. So you, I do, too. Yeah, and check, yeah. check that thing out. It's really well okay. done. Okay, cool. Yeah, absolutely. We'll mention it. Well, look, this was a lot of fun, Todd. Thank you for talking yeah. to me. I really, really appreciate it. I always thought you guys were a great and, to some degree, unheralded band. I mean, everyone knows Thanks. Tiffany's, but I've always wondered if people knew the rest because, to me, that's not even the best song on that album, you know? Well, thank and you. Thank that's you. my personal opinion, but I think there's more to discover, and I just wonder if people, are, if their minds are open enough to looking into it. You just never know when people have that one hit. They just assume that's what you are. And I just, I've been banging the drum for 20 years now, but there's more to it than that. So anyway, I appreciate you talking to me. There you have it, Todd Pipes. Interesting guy, right? I love how clearly he sees things. He is nobody's fool. I love his perspective on his career in retrospect. It's great. And I can't stress this enough. That EP that we talked about that came out last year, Locust House, is so good. My favorite song on it is called Winsome, and it's the one that's playing right now. That's why I want to close the show with it. Listen to this and tell me if you don't hear those late 80s, early 90s alternative bands like Kitchens of Distinction. Do you remember those guys? You wouldn't think about them when you hear Breakfast at Tiffany's, but they are in there in a lot of the other Deep Blue Something music. So investigate it. This band is worth a second look. Huge thanks to Jan Makevich for producing this podcast. As always, we love him. Please go into iTunes and subscribe to the show. If you like this episode, if you like learning about bands that you've forgotten about or you love but you don't hear enough of or musicians who played on things that you love that you didn't know about or bands that you've never heard of but who are great and have a story to tell, Subscribe to the podcast and you'll find out all those kinds of stories. Write us a review while you're there. You can like our Facebook page. I communicate with a lot of people that way. You can send me ideas of people you'd like me to track down for you on the show. A lot of people have been doing that. I'm working on a couple of those right now. You can send me an email about that too if you want at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And we have a playlist on YouTube. Just type in the Hustle Podcast Playlist. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you next week. You've met your future against my past. So show me everything that you know.